Hello there, you cheeky boys and girls from overcast Jacksonville, Florida. I'm sure not very overcast relative to Scotland, to be fair. I'm on my world tour. I arrived here from Mazunte, Mexico two weeks ago on my layover in Dallas. I met with some libertarians and we went out for lunch. It's relatively open here in Jacksonville. In fact, I think it's, well, pretty bloody open. You could go out to a restaurant or out to a bar. I hear things are pretty locked down in Scotland. I'd love to say that I voted with my feet to support the governor for opening up here, but I was just being an opportunist. My lovely girlfriend was uh, willing to put me up here in Jacksonville. So, it might interest you to know that you can actually get into the USA from the UK. If you've been in the UK in the last two weeks, unless you're a US resident, you can't get into the USA. You can, of course, stop over in Mexico, which I did, um, have a party with some hookers and crack and uh, catch COVID off one of them, which I um, didn't. Um, and then fly into the USA, go figure, without a test. But nope, no entry from the UK. So I, 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 in order to get into the USA, I actually had to book myself into a yoga retreat for a few weeks to give myself something to do in Mexico that I actually wanted to do. Um, as regular listeners to the show know, usually I go to India this time of year to escape the winter weather and do the same. Well, here I am. And I'm including as episode 167 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast a show I was invited to record with Richard Lucas of the Scottish Family Party. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's show. We have with us this week Dr. Anthony Samaroff. Now, Anthony is a member of the Scottish Libertarian Party, a representative of the Scottish Libertarian Party. I met him at a small party, a small party question time event last year. We've also met uh, once or twice to have a chat as well. Uh, he's the author of a, of a book I would recommend to you about the universal basic income. It says for and against. I mean, to be honest, it's mainly against. But it's, uh, it's a very interesting book. And uh, Anthony's currently in Florida. So by the wonders of modern technology, Anthony is going to join us now. Anthony is going to join me? us now. I can hear you. We can't see you at the moment. I don't know what's happened with that. Let's see if we can do an on-off thing. I could see Anthony five minutes ago. Just I, I could see myself. Right. Let me see if I change webcam. Right, I'm just using the computer's webcam. Sorry for oh, that false start, ladies and gentlemen. Don't know what happened to the webcam. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Richard. It's a great pleasure to join you. Uh, I escaped the Scottish lockdown madness for sunny Florida at the moment where they're relatively open. I would love to say I voted with my feet to support the government. The governor here is brave stance. But actually, it just so happens that this is where the lady lives, so I'm staying with her. Uh -huh. Yeah, 
Very good. I have to say, this camera you changed to is much better than the one you had before. Okay. Much, much better picture. Right, that's great. Now, there's all sorts of topics we can talk about. When we've chatted before, we've covered all sorts of ground. Some areas where we agree, some areas where we disagree. But we thought we'd start with the hot topic that Anthony's already mentioned. We haven't really talked about the whole coronavirus lockdown business on this show. And when you've got a libertarian on, you can guarantee you're going to have some strong views on the matter. So let's start there. So, Anthony, you're going to give us a sort of overview of your take of the whole thing. Well, let's see. I think I'm not so worried about the fact that the government locked down. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you expect the government, uh, you would expect the government to do. They are in the position where they're supposedly responsible for everyone. And um, they're going to be risk averse because anything that happens is ultimately going to get blamed on them if the if the virus spread um, unnecessarily. But I, what does worry me is the fact that no one seems to notice that anyone who's, uh, I mean, no one right from the start, no one who had an alternative view. Um, that, you know, for example, something I think would be quite reasonable would be to put resources towards shielding the elderly and vulnerable and, you know, maybe let um, younger people more or less live their lives. Even, I mean, it's not a strict libertarian position, but if the government wants to say, look, uh, mandate that if people uh, were wanted to take off their jobs, well, this is a hot thing. Um, well, 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 they're at risk. If people wanted to stay at home, that uh, the government could guarantee the right to do that, be, um, or if they were vulnerable or something, without taking this kind of extreme position. The thing is, no one was allowed on TV that has an alternative position. It's like we live in some communist, fascist country where only one opinion is allowed. There certainly are experts, um, you know, both economists, epidemiologists, medical people who think that this is the this is the wrong strategy. I think definitely people would see it w would be more skeptical towards the lockdown strategy if the government hasn't removed all the negative economic consequences of this from sight by pushing them backwards into the future, by printing tons of money, um, putting people on furlough, or oh, we'll give you, we'll, we'll pay for you to eat out in a restaurant, you know, we'll, we'll give you half off if you go to eat out. This, this madness, I mean, where's all this money going to come from? The, the standard libertarian uh, question, yep. where's all the money going to come yep. from? I, I really, really fear that in the future, um, you know, people people in this country aren't used to poverty. You know, um, in, in certain countries, they, uh, they're they they're used to being poor, but people here aren't psychologically prepared for what the con economic con consequences of this lockdown is. There's been no cost-benefit analysis. Not only that, no one's talking about the cost-benefit analysis. None of the politicians do. I have a... Um, article here from UNICEF, people can look it up. Um, devastate COVID-19 devastates already fragile health systems. Over 6,000 additional children under five could die a day. Um, the UN warns another article, economic down downturn could kill hundreds of thousands of children in 2020. Here's from the, the, the Express in the UK. Cancer deaths set to soar amid coronavirus crisis. And that's because people can't get into hospital to be checked out for perfectly routine checkups. And they're going to die because of it. 
But, you know, if you dare to mention this, you know, you're just someone um, that wants to kill grandma, apparently. You know, Mm -hmm. the idea of you making a benefit, cost-benefit analysis is um, anathema. So I'm scared. I'm scared by the fact that people aren't even saying, well, you know, can we not have a public debate about this? Um, Nicola Sturgeon's passing the lockdown procedures in Scotland without a vote in Parliament. She's effectively the dictator of Scotland when it comes to this, these things. So I'm really, really worried more about the public response than than the government's response and the fact yeah. that people aren't questioning this. Yeah. Uh, there's just a question here we can clear up very quickly. No. All right. Are we related? That's, that's, no. well. that's quite interesting. We're so... both bald. <laughs> I was thinking... Um... From a libertarian point of view, I mean, let's say that coronavirus was actually three times more serious than it is, yeah. or six times more serious than it is for, for each age group. But what sort of measures would you hypothetically endorse as a libertarian in, in the face of a, of a much more serious illness? Yeah, see, that's or is it just great... a matter of principle that uh, you wouldn't? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you're going to hear a wide spectrum of... Uh responses even from libertarians on that it's 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 hard to say i mean i wasn't strongly against the three weeks lockdown to flatten the curve um in the past in hindsight it seems like it was just uh the the thin end of the wedge so if if coronavirus was really as deadly as um the people who think it's as you know the worst is would it would it would it be necessary to mandate these kinds of measures? Would people not be sheltering in place as they were? Even for for younger people, I don't know what the solution is. What my my, my um the fact is what I do know is they're not consulting the science. Might it not be better if like young people just get it and get it out of the way? You know, if if they can just like I mean for me while I'm in Florida, this would be the best time to get it. I'll just hang out in the house for two or three weeks. Um, then when I get home, I don't need to go around. Um, I won't need to yeah. worry about about yeah. giving it to my parents. So yeah. the thing is, people live and people die every day, and people need to have to to be able to get be given the maximum scope to make their own choices. So at least I would like I, I would like it to be a little bit more science based than it is, even if you know it was um, killing a lot of people. Yeah, I think in terms of choice, I mean, I think if you know the, the Scottish Premier League. If their games were open next week, I think the stadiums would be full. Yes, I, I think people when people make individual risk assessments, there would be a tiny fraction of the amount of, of limitation of activity that was seen. But but in terms of the uh, of the illness, like you said, at the first lockdown, I think at that point there was quite a few bit of uncertainty about the nature of the disease as well. I think now yes. there are still concerns about how its long term effects on people. Not just a matter of uh, matter of, sort of counting the death rate. Some people are experiencing long term effects, you know, in brain yes. damage or whatever, all sorts of things. So it's a very complex thing to assess. But you're right that the disconnect between people's personal decision making and the the balancing of, of the different factors by the government is uh, is very very different. Now you mentioned I, I... the you mentioned the economic results of it, and that, that people generally don't seem at all concerned it's as though they they just can't conceive of living in a society that's not as wealthy but i think that's underlined by but even seems like the uk and the scottish government are in the same mindset they're still just giving money away hand over fist 
to win people over, assuming that democratically that's a winner, that assuming there's not going to be many people who are saying, hang on, what are you doing? You're miles in debt. We're in an economic crisis and you're just giving away money in all directions just to keep yourselves popular. But they don't worry about that because they think so few people actually understand the possible consequences that they just yeah. go ahead. I mean, uh, and do they even understand the consequences? I mean, they're not stupid. I, I, I've... I've, I, I'm amazed that third world countries have locked down. I mean, Malawi protested the lockdown and um, their government uh, withdrew because they were like, they live hand to mouth. And, you know, the the politicians in countries like India are not stupid. They know that some people are going to starve to death if they don't allow tourism and things like that. So the only conclusion is they either don't care or they think there's too many you know, there's too many people and they don't think it would be too bad a thing if some people died off. Um, but I mean, coming back to your, I, I thought of another point to address your question regarding the lockdowns. Um, whether, if the virus was more severe, would lockdowns be justified? This presumes that um, lockdowns are actually effective at um, stopping the spread of disease. We don't actually see evidence of that. If you look across countries, if you look at the charts that we've seen from all the nations against the world, across the world, even different states in America that have had different policies, it seems completely and utterly random. If you didn't know the name of the country attached to the chart, you wouldn't be able to tell when they locked down, uh, what the effect of the lockdown is, if they ever mandated masks, when they mandated masks, what percentage of their population was wearing masks. The charts are just totally random. Um, we, we were told that, say, Sweden might suffer 80,000, 90,000 deaths because they didn't lock, um, lock down severely and they had about 6,000. Did, did the people who are pro-lockdown say, oh, well, maybe we got it wrong. You know, maybe lockdowns aren't that effective. No, they made up an excuse. They said, well, you know, Swedish people don't really live close together like they do in, in other countries. They just pull this stuff out there yeah. Uh, backsides. Yeah. Same with Japan. They said, uh, "Oh, they they, they almost wanted Japan to have like tremendous numbers of deaths because it would, haha, that's what they get for not having a more strict lockdown." When it didn't come to pass, they said, "Oh well, you know, Asian people keep them keep keep to themselves and and they all wear masks." They're just making it up. It's like it's it's this unfalsifiable claim that lockdowns spread. Um, stop the spread of disease mm -hmm. and there, there's just, not just really go back to Africa uh, I think it's interesting yeah. with Africa and I hear there other countries introduce lockdowns but the people who are most vulnerable to coronavirus are often people who are you know in later life in western countries who to be honest wouldn't have reached that stage in life if it hadn't been right. for the quality of medical care available whereas some African countries point. they haven't got many people who are in that bracket so they've got less people are going to be at risk of very serious health problems with coronavirus. So it's thought that some African countries just locked down unnecessarily on the basis of international advice. I mean, just going back to the graphs issue, I mean, I think if you just look within the UK, I think if you look at the graphs there, there is evidence that the lockdowns have had an effect on the, um, on the virus. I mean, there's something called the prevention paradox, where if you warn something terrible is going to happen, do something to prevent it. If it does prevent it, there'll always be people who will say, oh, well, it, that wasn't really necessary because, look, it mm. didn't happen. But then the reason it happened. But, but you're right. Comparing different countries, there are so many variables that it's quite hard to 
understands what's going on. Well, what I would say, just say one more thing, sir. What I would say, though, that is I would say, if someone believes, if you've got to say that the full hand of the coronavirus skeptic uh, packet in your hand, then you're going to have, you don't believe that the disease is very serious. Um, lockdowns don't work. Social distancing doesn't work. Masks don't work. Vaccination doesn't work. Now, I would say if someone's got all five of those views, I would, I would, I would question that. I would say, because surely rationally, you, you could hold three out of five or two out of five or yes. four out of five. But if someone's got like five out of five, I might think, you know, is this mm. really looking at the evidence or is this just some underlying attitude of skepticism to the whole thing? Yeah, I see what you mean. And people really do get tribal with their thinking when it comes down to these. I think people's peer group seems to determine their views on coronavirus more than anything else. I mean, the hatred that I got on Facebook just for posting that there would be, you know, deaths from lockdowns um, was was pretty shocking. The thing is, I, I, I really don't know how to how we navigate a world in which it seems that people come to conclusions on these things on a tribal basis rather than um, based on reason and evidence. Now, uh, I can tell why people would be sceptical because they, they're sold a false basket of goods. But what we have is this um, mentality where, I, I don't know, like you go out and you speak to people and they're not even in touch with their audience. Like they, they're not aware that the views that they have and the way that they communicate them, say the the card carrying five uh, uh, five out of five coronavirus skeptic, you know, they're not they're 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 not even speaking to the individual in front of them. Like they've got a they they've constructed an idea of reality mm -hmm. in their head. And and I think when people are bad communicators in that way and um it makes whatever they believe sound stupid. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the times if you have good ideas and you're a bad communicator of those ideas um you're probably better not communicating them than speaking up yeah um, I mean, the, the, the media trick of course is to focus on incompetent communicators of the unpopular that's ideas that's a good point so, so the bbc and other they're specialists of putting the microphone under the nose of, of just someone who happens to hold an, an opinion but if you do that you've got such power if you've got 100 people from any political party or from any religious faith or from, from any philosophical outlook, you'll find one or two who really won't do a great job with the mic under their nose. And if you've got editorial control, that's what you can put up. And then on the other, straight after that, you can put up some specialist somewhere who's quite articulate and much more considered. And you can basically completely control the message as, as editor. I think that's, that's what's happened. I mean, mainly the other, the other point of view isn't given airtime. That's all, right. I think what's developed in the nation, I think what, for example, the BBC think, they think it's morally virtuous to be frightening people about coronavirus because if they frighten people, they're going to follow the rules and that ultimately will be best for the country. Now, there is some, you know, there, there's some rationality in that. I mean, there is some logic there. But on the other hand, whether there's logic there or not, the BBC or other media outlets shouldn't be setting out to effectively to be presenting a, a one-sided story or a distorted picture. Especially, which I think is the we've tended to get into. Especially when they are funded by the taxpayer and mm -hmm. it's not like the, there's a free market in uh, 
presenting information. Not anyone can get on the television. Not only that, people are being banned from Twitter, Facebook, and uh, YouTube for for posting alternative information. You know, experts mm-hmm. are being banned. Um, uh, a friend of mine who's a very popular libertarian podcaster, Tom Woods, uh, you should check out his presentations on COVID on YouTube. Tom Woods, COVID. He's He's got three or four really good presentations he's made. Um, you know, Facebook fact-checked one of his videos and they, they didn't just fact-check it um, like give give a standard response dismissing it. They actually went through multiple of the claims in the videos and attempted to debunk it. But it was so pathetic as to, in one case, they said uh, their fact check was, well, many, many experts disagree with this position. And it's like, okay, well, these experts disagree with your position. Are you going to put the same yeah. fact check on the contrary claim? No, it always slices one way. It always like, and what really shocks me is, I don't know about you, Richard, but you know, when I was growing up, the my experience of the left, I, I was uh, for my sins on the left up until the age of about twenty-one, uh, twenty-two maybe. Um, they thought themselves radical, anti-establishment. F-U-C-K the government um, and whatnot. And now it just seems that there's not a single establishment position that they don't love. They love Mm -hmm. the European Union, the most establishment uh, organization I can think of. Uh, And, you know, they're not only are they um, in favor of these lockdown controls, which are certainly going to hurt the working class, which they claim to love so much, more than affluent people, but um, they're calling to be controlled more. They want more control. Yeah. yeah. It's shocking uh, it, to me. The Scottish Family Party has taken a position with regard to lockdown. And we've taken as a mild lockdown skeptic position mm-hmm. in general, but we've, uh, we've published today that we're saying to the government, Scottish government, what they should be doing now. They've, they've got the vaccines. They can see how long it's going to take to roll it out, to give it to everyone who wants it. And then they know how long it's going to take to become active. So they should now be setting a definite date and saying after yes. whatever, first of May or whatever, that's it. Everything's back to normal. If, if you want to take measures personally, that's fine. But as far as rules and regulations are concerned, you know, that's it. We're completely back yeah. to normal from them. Which you would think would be the obvious thing yeah. to be doing, to put to be putting light at the end of the tunnel for people. But I, I'm, I'm suspecting, as a lot of other people, that they'll – we're trying to string it out. Now, I think this gets to the point where you start saying, why are people doing that? I, I don't really buy yeah. the line that, oh, you know, it's the thin end of the wedge. I mean, certainly right. not, you know, it's all plans to subdue us to the government or whatever. But I think and for Nicola Sturgeon, she obviously realises that it's played really well in terms of her popularity. Uh, so the temptation evidently. to just have something else, some measures or other continuing in the longer term, I think will be quite strong but we're saying we're completely against that set a date and then that's it the, the whole thing's over and we're back to normal plan your summer now etc yes and that's been one of the most difficult things about this lockdown is that people can't plan for the future mm-hmm. um there's a there's a term in economics called regime uncertainty which is the idea that if the government like um 
people on the left like to talk about how unstable markets are and how the government can be a moderating force in markets. But the but see if the regime can change the regulations at any point and makes economic planning completely impossible. Well, um, you know, you don't know if this regulation is going to change or that. Um, you can't plan two or three years ahead. So this has made just planning living impossible. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going to be next month because I don't know if the countries that I want to go to are going to be open or closed. Can they mm-hmm. not just throw people a bone and give them a, a little bit of an idea? Um, people, you know, have lost their businesses and things. There's not really much compassion for them. Uh I I I really I I just don't understand how people can't see the other side of this. I'm I'm really shocked and appalled by what I've been seeing in Facebook from pro lockdown people. I mean, can they not just say something as simple as, you know, I know this is really um horrible for people and it's not what anyone would have wanted, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, what you get is more along the lines of you just want to go out for a haircut. It's um, uh-huh. it's very infuriating. Yeah. yeah, like you say, people's concept, people's ability to experience fear of the future economically, right? I think is at a pretty low ebb. And people find it difficult to imagine that there's going to be real economic hardship ahead. That the NHS or education whatever are not going to be able to be funded in the way that they are now, or if the government keeps borrowing like crazily, eventually the wheels are going to come off and something's going to go wrong in that regard. I think people don't really take that seriously. Maybe people's memory, we're at the point where where people don't, re- a lot of people don't remember that sort of thing in the past. So they find it hard to envisage it in the future. But if the economy falls to bits, we can just give everyone a universal basic income, can't we? And then that will, uh, All right. that will, that will okay. solve the problem. Well, this is one of my fears about the universal basic income. I mean, people think that this is some liberty, um, this is going to liberate man to pursue his higher desires and we'll all um, uh, find out what we really want to do with our lives and yeah. we'll be able yeah, to do that. So can you just explain what a universal basic income is? Sorry, in case okay, it's the idea that, sure. the, that everyone should be entitled to a sum of money, not a great deal of money, but enough to make sure that they don't go starving and are able to meet their basic needs and they should be entitled to this as a as a dividend paid out from by the government, um, and this this the best arguments for in favour of it is that it would reduce the bureaucratic complexity of the system and be cheaper to administrate because um, it's just a flat sum paid to everyone regardless of what they earn. And the second good argument for it is that. Um, no matter how much people were earning, they would still earn more by working. So it wouldn't create like the poverty trap where uh, that we find with some welfare benefits, where if people work a little bit more, they their take home money is less because they lose their benefits. Those are those are the two favourable arguments for it. Uh, well, there's more arguments in favour of it, but, but those are the two I find most convincing. The problem is, I think. This is going to be, if you look at what's happening in China with the social credit system where the government gives people a rating on what good or bad citizen they are, the government could easily do this with the universal basic income. It's like, first of all, oh, well, you know, you didn't sort out your recycling, so you're getting a 
-hmm. a fine on your universal basic income or you know someone flicks a cigarette but uh on in this in the park and oh you know we're going to dock your universal basic income and it's like yeah why not get them you know mm -hmm. why shouldn't we i mean we're why should we as a society furnish them with a universal basic income but then look what's happening on twitter and facebook and youtube with people with unpopular views being banned how long before you know i might not be appearing on this show if i thought that um one thousand pounds uh month or whatever hinged on me not uh, being a political dissident so uh, a lot of scary things could happen with this universal basic income it would make the great uh, a great plot for a dystopian scientific yeah. science fiction but that, novel that's, but that, that's really interesting this idea that it was it would just be another thing for people just to worry about it would be another right. deterrence to speak in your mind right. and already in scotland you know, I often say virtually everyone's got a reason to keep their head down. Right. It's, it's their job. It's their course. It's their partner's job. It, it's their. There's some connection where they're thinking, mm, I'm not quite sure what would happen if I, you know, if I spoke out, and they might be a, a bit reluctant. But I hadn't really thought about that with the universal basic income. But that's that would be a very significant factor as soon as they started saying this is something that can be taken away. For sure, and it, it might start universal, but how long can it stay universal i mean mm -hmm. so far as i've seen the government uses any <laughs> means at its disposal to um well i mean the the, the government kind of depends on people to being dependent you know uh we're told by that oh you know the reason why we have poor is you know greedy capitalists need poor people to exploit but i think it's really the government that depends on having poor people because if people on low incomes achieve the middle class income they do what middle class people do take people out the public schools and put them in better private schools okay well we you know there won't be so many people going who'll educate the poor without the government they'll get health insurance so less people will be on um nhs waiting list oh you know less who's going to treat the sick uh, you know who's going to treat poor people without uh, without the government you know people aren't going to go into the military as readily so they're not going to have so much um um basic uh, it's not going to be easy to get people to fight these foreign interventions crime would go down significantly if um socio-economic conditions improved as well so the government depends on crises that's why it's coming to full bloom during this coronavirus crisis and uh, every crisis is is the health of the state sadly sadly i fear that um the the state's stated purpose of you know being a referee is at odds with the incentive structure of having a state so if you take the smp as an illustration do you believe that the smp really underneath it want people to be dependent on the government that's their ideal do, do you think they, that thought is in their consciousness or do you think it floats underneath no i wouldn't say well i mean there might be some people like that um i think it's more that every system tends to produce the incentives that it tends to produce what's economically incentivized to produce mm -hmm. so if you look at the welfare state the 
the purpose is to alleviate, the stated purpose is to alleviate poverty, but instead it creates intergenerational poverty. It replaces the local community, which would be the natural source of people's security. Because when you're getting a welfare check, you don't need to know your neighbours. Does that mean that the people who designed the welfare state intended to make people poor? It doesn't really matter if they did or not, because that's what that's where the incentives are pointing. So that would be my rationale for... So, so, so what would the welfare state look like if you were the first minister of Scotland? Well, oh, what would I do with it? Well, mm. the thing is, I think eh, I recommend that people buy my book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, because... Um, uh, Rational Rise Press. Amazon? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Amazon. If you want your copy signed, then just send me a little note so that I, I can send one out to you. Um, not that I'm famous or anything, but some people dislike it. Um, yeah, I don't think that you can just remove the welfare state because people are so dependent on it now. But in that book, I discuss various policies which would increase living standards or, let's say, and create an environment where voluntary institutions could um, creep in to perform the roles that the, the welfare state is meant to. Um, and then, you know, I, I would like to see that kind of phased out and um, replaced with community, basically. And uh, the uh, things could be done on a local level, but also the government can only send you a check. It doesn't know if you need uh, some job training. It doesn't, it doesn't know if you need skills, if you don't have a network, if you actually, what you need is occupational therapy. What you need is to be um, volunteering in the nursing home or something like that and getting out the house and feeling that you're actually a useful human being. The government can't tell that from uh, Westminster or from Edinburgh. So the, the benefit that local institutions would have is they can, when you need welfare, you go and you look a person in the face and they find out about you and what your case is and then they can put you on a program you know people people who've um to get you hopefully to get you back into work if that's not um if that's not possible for you um they've got limited resources so they'll need to become experts uh um they're they're not paying you with this money that's um taken by force through the tax system so they don't have a bottomless well they'll have to look at the most efficient way to spend those funds um helping people and that's that's the kind of yeah. those kind of like ground up mm -hmm. institutions i think would be um far better that's kind of like a brief premier yeah. and how i see it yeah i mean the first line of defense for all these things i think obviously should be the family the families are strong and stable that then that's that's a lot of yeah. issues uh, dealt with at that level, which really is the ideal. Now, in terms of the local organization model there, and I, I can see that that's got a lot of advantages. But what would happen there, surely, is you'd end up, the government would have to oversee it, and they'd see that maybe, you know, maybe in Dingwall, you know, there's nothing to, that's really focused for drug addicts or, or whatever, these sort of people. And then what does the government do if there aren't these, these charitable agencies there? The government thinks, oh, well, we need to get one there somewhere. How can we do that? And then they start getting more and more involved in order to make sure right. there's e even coverage. Is that inevitable? I don't know. Uh, it might be inevitable given people's current level of 
uh, economic reasoning or lack thereof, you know, because people, because as soon as there's a crisis, as soon as there's any gap, people think, oh, we need the government to do something about this. We're quite a long way off from having people understand how spontaneous order emerges on a market, uh, unfortunately. Um, the thing is, I, I fear that if you have a government program designed to get addicts off drugs, you are just guaranteeing that you will never see an end to drug addiction. Because everyone in that organization's job will depend on there being drug addicts to treat. So again, you're, you're, you're confronted with this incentive problem. Um, and if you watch the documentary, I think it's called, um, damn it, it's something Aid Inc, Foreign Aid Inc or Food Inc. Um, they were talking about how when we were trying to give foreign aid to third world countries, Poverty Inc, that's what it's called. You just had a bunch of organizations that grew around having this uh, this money that was supposed to fight poverty. And they're never, they were never going to solve the the, the problem of poverty. So it wouldn't like the same thing to happen with issues like, like drug addiction. Yeah. The thing about drug addiction though, like, let's say we've got some center financed by the government and you know, there are five people there who work with the drug addicts who come along to it. But I don't see that in any way as sort of incentivizing drug addiction. I don't see well, that creating, creating demand for their service. Now, if actually it got to the point well, you know, there were only 10 drug addicts left in the town and they thought they were going to be out of a job if they, if they got them all off drugs. I mean, that, that's a pretty unlikely situation, isn't it? I think normally, just naturally, there would be a supply of, of people in that situation for them to deal with. So, so I, I don't see that, that that maintains the problem in that situation. Now, maybe with other things, in terms of, of benefits, then I think that can have uh, the effect of sustaining a lifestyle multi-generationally it's not not to say it's you know just an open choice people take to enter into that in every case but it can have the consequence of sustaining the problem that's for sure so i think it's a mixture i think there could be sure. lots of factors at play well i guess you'd have to um see it in action um i think we're not really confronting the fact that we don't have uh great infrastructure or even understanding of how to deal with addiction. I think, um, you know, we've got this conception that uh, mental health experts know it all, but I mean, the, the field's in its infancy. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people go to the NHS, their NHS doctor looking for help with whatever it happens to be, whether it's just an addiction like losing weight um, or they're struggling with depression or anxiety. If they're lucky, they'll get six six um, six sessions of CBT, and then off they go. That's that's what they're entitled to under yeah. the system. No yeah. better than they came in. And uh, it, people, when people turn up for help, they expect to be helped. Um, we're in a little bit of a sad situation where I fear that, I mean, I, I myself am a, a mental health professional, you know, I'm a therapist, that's what I do for a living. Um, people despair to find that when they turn up for help, the help doesn't actually exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you're saying there is absolutely right about people going to the the doctor with all sorts of, of issues. And that's a trend in society, isn't it? To treat more and more things as 
as health issues or especially as mental health issues. Mm. And that partly reflects, it relates to what you were saying earlier, it reflects a lack of connection with, with other sorts of, of local charities, institutions, organizations, or whatever, uh, which a lot of cases would have been the church. You know, you, you'd go to the vicar or, or the minister to talk about a lot of these issues. But now I think it, it tends to be more, you turn to the professionals or it becomes medicalized. So in terms of the universal basic income, you, we've uh, we talked about a couple of alleged benefits of it. What, what, are, the, what are the main flaws with it? Okay, sorry, just before that, i just say one thing. For the family party point of view, it's our policy is against the universal basic income, by the way. But, but one aspect of it that would actually be attractive is that we're quite keen on giving parents choice how to structure their work-child-care uh, system. So if they want to have one parent working, one one parent at home with the young kids full-time, we want the tax system, the etc., to try and facilitate that, to help them to make that choice okay. if they want to. A universal basic income would be a very significant step in that direction. So if, for example, mum chose to be at home with the kids for four or five years, then that, that would be a major step in that direction. But for other reasons, we don't think that's the way to try and achieve that end. There's other mm. ways that are better. Anyway, so some of, some of the problems with universal basic income. You want some of the problems with it? Yeah. Or, okay. Um, well, I mean, one thing is... Uh, in some cases, you'll be making people's lives worse. I mean, you can't differentiate between, for example, a drug addict giving the or someone who's addicted to computer games giving them money when actually they'd be better going out and about if they've got food sub substance addictions. You're not even you're not just making their lives worse. You'll be making their deaths worse. Um, there's obviously that um, one thing's the disincentive to work. Secondly, you're going to have to tax in people who are working significantly more to cover the basic income since uh, um, it means spending a lot more. Uh, that's going to disincentivize work. Um, also, if it's paid for by printing money, you're essentially increasing the money supply. The price of goods and services is going to go up. People's rents will go up. What's going to happen? People just go out. They they think that this money is going to come from the rich people. They're just going to go out to the shops and spend it. It's going to go back to the. It's going to go back to the rich people, except for there'll be less production and uh, standards of living. The thing is, people don't understand that it's actually like production, not consumption, that makes people rich, right? So when you're taking the money from uh, companies, you know, the corporation tax or whatever, from the rich people who've got it um, invested in the stock market and machines and factories. It might look like you're you're getting a nice tasty handout here, but mm -hmm. what you're doing with the handout, you're going out and buying some stuff and consuming it, and then there's less stuff to go around. When you're buying, when the money's in the machines, the factories, it's doing research and technology and so forth. That's when you have the um, the escalation of production, the innovation that reduces the cost of goods and services. As we've seen, you know, this laptop that I'm on, you know, it costs a few hundred quid. I wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to get a machine this powerful a few years mm -hmm. ago without spending a grand or two. So it's all of that, the money that's in production that actually increases people's living standards 
in real terms over time. So, but they're kind of under this illusion that, oh, if you go out, give people money and they go out to the shops and spend it, that's what gets the economy going. That's um, very superficially compelling economic reasoning, but it's not how the economy works. Yeah. The problem with all that is the argument, basic argument in favor of the universal income. I mean, really anyone can understand that, can't they? Whereas the arguments against it, that's it, are a bit more involved, and that that makes things an uphill struggle in the modern political arena. When I heard that there's roughly, I don't know, ten or twenty percent of people who engage with politics online or in some way um, muted, by the way, in some way beyond just you know catching a bit of the TV news or looking at the BBC website a little bit or whatever, but the the eighty percent of people that that's as far as it goes. So like the arguments you've just presented. They're never going to come across those. Never. That's exactly right. And this is the problem with economics in general. Um, Frederick Bastiat, a fantastic French economist from the first half of the 19th century, said, our, we must admit that our enemies have an advantage over us and that in a single sentence, they can utter a half-truth. But to demonstrate that it's a half-truth, um, we must have recourse to long and dry dissertations. Yeah. And that this is the problem. You know, I don't know the expression, the truth get the a lie gets around the world by the time the truth puts its mm -hmm. pants on or, mm -hmm. or whatever. It's very, very difficult. Um, it's it's hard to be optimistic. What I would say is economic reasoning is extremely interesting. So the 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 one advantage it maybe has on its side is if you can show people like how you can think through the logic of what the knock-on effects of a policy is you know the right way they might go oh that's interesting they might be interested in hearing more but um i agree with you it's pretty hard to get the point across because people only want to look at the conspicuous results of a policy so oh if you yeah. increase the minimum if you increase the minimum wage then you know people on low incomes will have a higher wage but you don't consider that well those employers will have to employ less of those people so a lot of people will have no wage what's yeah. more uh, a lot of people who don't have any work experience they need to be in a job getting on the job training so that they can get skillful i'm not going to pay someone 10 pounds an hour to train them well they're making me uh -huh. no money whatsoever so mm -hmm. by you know slapping a minimum wage on you're actually reducing my ability to improve someone's prospects by taking them on for yep. on the job yep. training you know stuff like that should be obvious the reason why they put minimum prices on alcohol is because they know if you increase the price of alcohol less people will buy it but for some reason you can't get it through these people's thick heads that if you increase the price of labor less people will employ labor it's really really rather infuriating it should be obvious with a lot of these things i've talked about it recently it's been the modern studies mindset i don't know if you know in scotland there's a subject academic subject called modern studies basically right. a big module about inequality so that's you know inequality is a bad thing and the government does various things about it. And they learn about various anti-inequality measures, basically ways the government's got of, of giving money to various people in various situations. And they assess them to see which one they think, you know, which ones are best at tackling inequality. But then that's it. 
that's the end of wrestling. I mean, the other side, you know, where does this money come from? Right. The wider effects. That's just just not there at all. So we're trying to do music when you hear MSPs, like Humza Yousaf's one. Uh, there's other ones as well. We'll say, you know, I, I got interested in politics by studying modern studies. I think, yeah, I can see that. Right. So the, whole, the whole Scottish Parliament's studied modern studies and hasn't really gone much beyond it and understanding the, uh, the the broader perspective on these issues. It's just the, the very simplistic uh, understanding that basically get, giving money to people helps them. Yes, inequalities, uh, and inequalities pretty much all they've got left because we long since debunked the idea that um, oh, communism would be, or socialism would be more productive than capitalism because we'd get out the greedy capitalists who are skimming off 12% in profits. The, you uh -huh. know, the old left were in favor of economic growth and, and they said that socialism would be more productive than capitalism. But then they found out that that was wrong. So we had all the people saying economic growth is a bad thing. It's bad for the environment. Inequality is bad, um, etc. So, I mean, uh, we've basically won uh, when I say we, I mean those who are in favour of the market economy, we've basically won on every issue. So inequality is all they've got left. I was actually in a, um, some sceptic society meeting or something like that. Um, you know, uh, I can't remember what it was, but we discussed, we were discussing poverty and things like that. And I mentioned India and other examples of countries that had become much more wealthy, much less poverty because of market reforms. And someone actually said outright, well, you know, uh, there might be a lot more, less poverty in India, but inequality has skyrocketed. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I was actually dumbfounded. It was like, he was like a caricature of a leftist saying that. And I was thinking, you really hate people, don't you? You would rather all those people were poor and equal than they weren't in poverty and they were uh, equally, they were, oh, sorry, you'd rather they were equally poor than that they were coming out of poverty. It's very, mm -hmm. very sad, you know? And it's not like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of very rich people got rich for reasons that I don't agree with, by rent seeking, by lobbying the government, by getting the government to ban their competition and so forth. But mm -hmm. our opponents are not really that great at having that nuanced view. They're not saying, they're saying that wealth per se, that private property per se is a bad thing. They're not saying, well, you know, I don't mind people being rich as long as, you know, they, they, they did it legitimately through the voluntary exchange of goods and services and that their goods and services um, increased the living standards of millions of people as mm -hmm. Amazon has. I mean, Jeff Bezos is a rent seeker and I wish he'd stop it, but you can't deny that, you know, people benefit from Amazon services. So this is the problem. Sometimes our nuance, the, the fact that we yeah. want to see things clearly as yes. they are, seem to stand against us. Here's an interesting one. This is slightly off topic, but it just made me think about that. If, if you were a Labour MSP in Scotland, if you drove around in a new Range Rover, that really wouldn't go down well, would it? You'd be a bit worried about doing that. You, you'd think that the Labour supporters are going to think, hmm, there's something wrong here. That's a sign of inequality. Whereas the SNP talks the inequality line as much as anyone. And yet you get the likes of Ian Blackford. Well, you know, you range over from yourself, one, one for his wife, whatever. And somehow or other, that doesn't seem to, 
to register. There doesn't seem to be any kickback from the supporters. I don't know that's if that's because in the SNP, independence is, is, is just so all-consuming that they're willing to forgive these other things with it. But it's quite a contrast. Because if you hear the SNP talking, they talk like Labour in terms of, of you know, solving inequality or whatever. Why does that difference exist, do you think? I think people just want to hear the right things. They're not, you know, people are committed to their side. I've been seeing this recently. I remember when I was in university, um, an associate of mine was going on about how this organization and that organization are just a front for the Labour Party and they're biased and things like that. Um, so I'm still seeing him on Facebook now and everything that the SNP does is obviously um, correct, you know. Um, People's critical faculty seems to check out when they are affiliated with a side. Mm -hmm. um, I can't really explain it. I mean, um, current affairs aren't really my strong point. I'm more kind of like a political philosophy and economics, history. Those are kind of more my wheelhouse. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, time has flown at an incredible rate. It certainly a has. A couple of comments I just wanted to bring in. Got this one here. Um, doubling the allowance before tax for fathers to earn more money that would afford mothers more time to spend with the children less stress on families. Our, our policy of transferable tax allowance for married couples, that, that's what it effectively does. It doesn't have to be the father. It could be the mother. So if you've got one, one parent working, one not working, then they would keep a lot more of the money and they'd be more able to make that decision. I would say that's that's one of our most, most important and basic <laughs> policies. Would that be something on the Scottish libertarian wavelength, or? Well, I mean, yeah, I think any any reduction in taxes is generally a good thing. I mean, you could do all sorts of things that were in a libertarian direction that people wouldn't like, like, um, uh, for example, if someone takes their child out of private uh, public school and puts them in a private school, um, they're saving the state money. So you could give them a partial tax rebate and that would help more working class people have access to private education. Oh no, but you can't do that. You know, things like that. Um, I, I, I kind of, I, I sympathize with you that um, I would like to see families stick together. You know, I think uh, probably single parenthood is the biggest source of um, strain on the welfare state and obviously the sociological problems deriving from single motherhood are huge and that the welfare state you're not allowed to say it but that it has basically created an epidemic of single motherhood so I could see why you would want to enact policies that would turn the tide back on that um, I don't know uh, what your chances are of having those policies implemented these days where you're not even allowed to say eh, well that, that's sure the thing though for, for, for small parties yeah. like ourselves i mean obviously you know we're you might be a candidate in the next election we'll have candidates but we're, 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 scotland is not going to be run by a coalition of the scottish family party and the scottish libertarians <laughs> after the next election so i mean basically these are minority views so in a democracy we can't expect that they're going to be government policy hmm. But our thinking is more, if we get MSPs in the parliament, at least it opens up the debate. At least more people can hear these arguments. And that's how things can really get moving. In a democracy, you've got to persuade people, basically. And the that's problem right. at the moment is people are not hearing a huge spectrum, a huge section of the spectrum of opinion. 
because it partly because it's never expressed in the parliament. Then the media follow the parliament and stick on the same sort of safe territory. So we think opening up the debate and persuading more yes. and more people of the views is good. Because the thing we've got on our side, uh, as I'm sure you, you think you you have as well, is a lot of things you're saying. They're fresh for people. Mm. With the other parties, they they just talk about the same old things. They haven't. They're trying to nitpick each other's policies, but they're basically on the same wavelength. That's right. But if you've got something different, I mean, that makes people sit up. And I think people are much more open to be persuaded when they hear something for the first time and think, "Yeah, that can." I can see some oh, sense in that. But that's the long-term view. Yes, I mean it's unfortunate. I, th I you think you know with all the talk of privilege on the left, you know you've got your white privilege, your um, your male privilege, and what forth. They'd 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 care to mention probably the biggest privilege of all, the most important privilege of all, which is good parenting privilege. And I, I fear yeah. that the reason why they can't talk about good good parenting privileges, all the evidence shows that having a dad around as well as a mum is going to give a person the best advantage in life and to not have yeah. one parent is going to put them at a tremendous disadvantage. You're but in I the said, wrong party. You're in the wrong party. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a link to sign up after this. Well, I do look forward to the day when we do rule Scotland as a coalition of the fam Scottish Family Party and the Scottish Libertarian Party. I consider you an ally, Richard, and uh, I'm glad that your voice is out there and, and you're spreading the word to those people who it appeals to you. Now, I think a libertarian as well. Uh, I think it's a really interesting perspective on politics. And I think having that voice in the debate... I think is a really positive thing. But just to, but we're going to do the usual thing where I say, you know, our guests are obviously not perfect, so they don't agree with us on anything, on, on everything. Uh, and Anthony had picked a couple of policies that he uh, disagreed with the family party on. We're not going to have time to to talk about those. But this, this is something, a genuine question, because I'm not quite sure. What's the Scottish Libertarians' policy on Scottish independence? We are in favour of it. Um, the, the, the party is officially in favour of it. We have members that are against Scottish independence, but it was uh, voted on again last year at the AGM. Some people wanted to drop it, and uh, the majority carried that our policy would remain to be in favour of independence. So um, even, though, even though we've got senior members of the party who don't share that view, mostly because they don't want to live in the People's Republic of Scotland. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I wonder how many people their in, their position on independence is determined by what sort of Scotland they think they would end up in. In other words, are the people who think I really like the idea of an independent Scotland, but not the sort that I think we'd get. In fact, I, I've heard people say that actually. Yes. Yes. And uh even our our leader said uh he doesn't want us taken out of the British Union just to be foisted back into the European Union. So if that's what the SNP now, has in mind, even though he's strongly in favour of independence, uh -huh. he'd have to consider his vote carefully. Now, here's an interesting thing on the EU. Now, you're obviously not a fan of the EU. Personally, I'm not. Scottish Family Party, uh, we don't get into that particularly. We might in the future. If Scotland became independent, then we would take a policy on EU membership. But I was hearing some people from Eastern European countries 
And in those countries, it's the right wing of politics that want the country to be in the EU. Because <laughs> the EU well. reigns in their crazy overspending governments. Right. And it's the That's left funny. that want to get out so that they, they can just have a spending bonanza. So Scotland's really keen to get into the EU, but would they really? Is that the way it would really stay? I don't know. I, I was fascinated to hear that. I think it was Slovenia I was hearing it from, that the right wing were just desperate to get into the EU to get their government under control. I've heard that as well. They don't want the EU. They just hate um, Westminster. They just hate. <laughs> it's like, um, you. Uh, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've heard of him, Norman Finkelstein, the critic of uh, 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 of Israel. Of Israel, when asked about the even when him, even he, when asked about the Palestinian, uh, the Pia, um, I can't remember what the name of the organization is for my sins. He said uh, they don't want peace; they just don't want Israel. And that was coming from a critic of Israel. Um, uh -huh. He thought they were. It's kind of like that. It's like just they. They just don't want when Westminster. They love EU. Apparently, it's liberal and co cosmopolitan, and uh, they. I, I I can't explain it. It's just a tribal thing, like your football team at this point. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll draw things to a close. Time's flown as usual. That was a really interesting discussion. I'm sure people have really appreciated hearing your perspectives. Thanks to everyone who's been watching and chipping in. I'm not very good at picking up on comments, am I? It's just a bit too much to fit in my brain tracking comments. But we've brought a couple in. Uh, but thanks for all the others as well. But we have seen uh, seen them as they've been coming up. So thank you. And, uh, thank you so yeah. much for having me. A pleasure. Uh, till next time. Till next we'll time. In the new year Bye. as well. well. We'll talk about the things we didn't get to this time. Great. Drugs and assisted suicide, for example. Bye. -bye. Right. Thanks, everyone, and good night.